Kyle Samani is managing partner at Multicoin Capital, a thesis-driven crypto investment firm that he co-founded with Tushar Jain. Multicoin was founded in 2017 and manages several billion in assets under hedge funds and venture funds. Previously, he was co-founder and CEO of Pristine, a company building Google Glass software for surgeons. Under Kyle's management, Multicoin has made some notable investments, including Solana, Near, Helium, Audius, and Arweave, making Multicoin one of the most successful crypto funds around. Kyle's writing and successful contrarian bets have made him one of the most respected thought leaders in the crypto space. Today, we talked about risk, thesis-driven investment, and what he thinks people aren't thinking enough about. Hope you enjoy. You know, Kyle, you've got a really interesting path that I'd love to delve into for a bit. So starting with, I'd say, the origin of some of those larger interests, whether it's, uh, you know, one of your parents being a computer scientist, going back and forth between finance and programming in college, uh, starting pristine or anything else in between. Like, what's the synopsis of some of those key points and decisions that led you to where you are at Multicoin today? I think there's a couple really important things one is follow your passions uh, it's very cliche <laughs> but certainly resonated with me and, and has impacted how i think about myself and my time and then the other thing i would say is go to the end of the risk curve there's way too much focus in society on not going to the end of the risk curve and i think it's quite important to go to the end of the risk curve in your 20s you can afford to be wrong in your 40s it's a lot harder uh, again, also very cliche, but I, I do find those to be to be quite accurate. And then uh, the other one I would say that that's probably more kind of Kyle idiosyncratic is I just I just read an absolute ton of information that's been very helpful. That kind of that accumulated knowledge helps us make investment decisions. But that's more relevant only if you're going down the investing. If you're a, on the builder track, it's probably a lot less relevant. I'd be interested to hear you dig in a little bit in that second one, because that was actually the second question I had for you, you know, and choosing to forego the traditional path and starting a company built around Google Glass, which I'd love to hear a little bit more about. I, I suspect you might have sort of an interesting take on well-calculated risk uh, when you're faced with some larger life decisions. Do you have like a thought process that you go through? No, it's, it's not very formal. Uh... It certainly wasn't with Pristine. Uh, with Pristine, it was I wanted to I wanted to start a company for the sake of saying that I started a company, and I like shiny new objects. And Google Glass was a very shiny new object, and that was really about it. And that also, as a lack of clarity, probably uh, partially impacted the net outcome, which was not super successful. Although there was also some variables outside of my control. The second time around with Multicoin, I was definitely more thoughtful about specifically with what market I went into, I would say my, my experience running Pristine was basically fighting gravity the whole time. I had to fight to raise Android money. I had to fight to raise VC money. I had to fight to try and win customers. I had to fight to try and, once the customers had signed the contract and wireless money, fight to make them successful and do what they were supposed to do with it. And it was just full of friction every step of the way. And I remember kind of while I was doing that was like the rise of Uber. And I remember just like how, or like, Twitter and some other things. And we're just like, these businesses don't seem to have this much friction. And uh, maybe think very carefully about markets and like, what market do I really want to spend my time in? That led me to crypto. And, and kind of the theoretical point of crypto is that you make finance frictionless. And that, that kind of struck me and resonated with me. So I think it's super important to pick a market that, you know, you think has real secular tailwinds. That's a super, super hard thing to do, but, but very important. 
I'd love to take a minute to touch on the process behind starting MultiCoin. You know, you mentioned fighting every step of the way, and obviously the timing was pretty great because you guys started just before the 2018 crash. Well, great in some ways and terrible in others, I guess I could say. But what was the process of starting a fund from scratch back then? Like, especially in the crypto space, like it was just what Polychain and CoinFund around at the time? Polychain, CoinFund, the Metastable, really the three around at the time. Yeah, it was, it was very wild, wild west. Like we were self-custodying all the assets. You know, we were using like small shop lawyer, law firms, small shop accounting firms. And it was all just super ratchet, quite frankly. Like we could have just ran off with all. Today, it's obviously much more buttoned up. We're SEC registered, audited by KPMG. We work with a bunch of institutional custodians. But it was just really wild, wild west. And we didn't know what we were doing. And, you know. We were slow. It took us five months to launch our fund, which is, is pretty slow by U.S. standards. But we just hustled and kept trying to call people and raise $50,000 here, $100,000 there, and somehow got this thing off the ground. What was the sort of decision process behind starting a fund to begin with? Because you mentioned, you know, you mentioned starting Pristine. You guys were doing stuff for Google Glass around, I believe, Surgeons. Was that right? Yep. And obviously, Google pulled the plug on Glass. That's to what you alluded to earlier, some stuff that was out of your control. But in getting out of that situation and and turning and deciding to start a fund, what was the decision to start a new fund instead yeah. of starting a new company? Yeah, so Tushar has a fairly good answer to this. I'll try and regurgitate it. You know, Tushar and I were talking about crypto. We, we got started to get excited about the opportunities for permissionless finance. And we started thinking about all the things we could do in the space and how we could impact it. And the thing that we both knew, you know, we had we'd both just done startups. And the thing we didn't like was the building the business part of our prior businesses and hiring and firing and, and managing a board and, and doing all those things. And we also knew that we loved to write, me in particular. I loved kind of longer form writing. And I knew I just loved to read. Like if you told me to just go read all day for 10 hours a day, I could do that not talk to a single person and uh, kind of recognizing that combination of strengths that became fairly clear that that aligns more with investing than with, with operating. And so that was kind of a natural fit for us. What we didn't expect was like how effective the writing would, would be in terms of brand building. That, that certainly worked out much better than we expected. And, uh, you know, we certainly couldn't have anticipated DeFi and NFTs and all those other things that ended up happening, but it was a, a very, very fun and just exciting kind of way to get into the space. Talk about the writing part for a second in terms of brand building, because obviously, I, I mean, I would assume that a large part of that was the fact that there weren't that many people around back then who were writing quite as, as consistently as you guys were about the space. What was the, I mean, intention going into it? Were you just writing to put ideas out there to sort of clarify thinking? Was it for the purpose of building a brand around multi-coin? Like, what was the ultimate goal? Yeah, the goal was primarily kind of brand building. What, what, one thing that Tushar and I both had a fairly strong intuitive sense for, although I still think we underappreciated it, but we underappreciated less than most other people, was the need to just make noise. But to do so in like, not just like a, a shilly, dumb way, but in a like thoughtful, productive way. But it turns out if you just keep saying pseudo-intelligent things on the internet enough times, it, it's actually a very effective strategy for, for broadly like getting people to know who you are. So that, that was really the goal going in. Uh, and then obviously there was some hope that like an entrepreneur would read it and call us and we'd get to lead the, lead the round. Uh, that also ended up working quite effectively, but that's kind of a more, that's like a derivative of point number one almost. 
When it comes to founding versus investing, I mean, you've had the opportunity to sit on both sides of the table. And there seem to be like two schools of thought here. One which tells you to found a startup or work at a startup to get some operational experience before you start investing. And the other which tells you to sort of squeeze your way into the investment space so that you can learn from really great operators before you go off and do it yourself. So, so firstly, do you lean more one way or the other? Obviously, experience would say one thing. Um, and secondly, are there any standout lessons you've taken from being a founder into your role as an investor? So I think I don't have a strong view of what you should do first. I think it's it's you should you need if if your curiosity is too extreme and intellectual curiosity is too extreme, you probably will bias towards investing over building. So you need to be very cognizant your own intellectual curiosity. Some some builder, especially in crypto, it's very easy as a builder in crypto to like be on Twitter all day and, and read three or four hours a day and then manage your own book and then also try and run your startup on the side. And uh, it's very easy to fall in that trap. And obviously folks like me do that all day. And so that, that that's the biggest thing, I think probably is, is recognizing that and then going from there. But I don't have a strong view in one direction or the other. The second part of the question, if you fail, get up and try again. One of the things I generally look for, I, I now consider this a, a plus, is if a founder has failed and then they get up and try again. To me, that's like, that makes me much more bullish the founder. With that in mind, to speak to your process behind you know, being contrary and, and right. A question in, in two parts again here. Firstly, uh, what's your general approach to thesis-driven investment? Because the one thing that stuck with me uh, that a couple of people I think seem to hold pretty strongly as an opinion is, is this idea of a thesis representing everything you won't do versus what you will do. How is that, I think, what three-part thesis evolved for, for Multicoin to today? Yeah, we, I'd say, are 90% thesis-driven and 10% not. There are some things that you learn about that you can't possibly have forecasted. Helium is a very good example of that. And so we, we generally like to swim in the lanes that like we, we have defined. And I think that that focus is good. The longer I've been doing this, the more I appreciate the importance of focus. So yeah, it's good. But I also think it's important to like go out, swim outside your lane from time to time. When, when you do so, you need to have a very, very good reason for doing so. Um, I think you have to hold yourself to an extra high bar when you do so, but I think it's important to do so, both for like diversification of portfolio for, and for just like trying to always make sure you're at the frontier of like what's going on. As a VC, like you need to kind of be at the frontier of what's going on. And so whatever you think your defined swim lanes are, like can't include 100% of everything because inevitably things are changing. As I guess a bit of an add-on here, only what like a year ago, it would have been pretty unpopular to say that anything would give Ethereum a run for its money. But now it's become pretty consensus to say that Solana will probably coexist with it. So the larger question I'd have here is: is do you think there's a problem of taking sort of a set in stone attitude to chains or networks or protocols and deciding they're more, I guess, entrenched than they might actually be? Yeah. So, so there's a lot of obviously tribalism in crypto that that is makes it challenging to read and learn about it. I, I've come to the conclusion that tribalism is net good and not that bad. Because you like to make these things work, you need adamant supporters. And a good way to be adamant, even in the face of everyone else telling you your thing is useless, is to hold a bunch of hold a bunch of the tokens and be economically incentivized by it. So I've kind of come to the conclusion that, that tribalism and partiality are, are, are net good, although I realize they create a lot of noise and 
inflammatory comments. So I don't have a problem with it. Uh, and certainly I'm very much guilty of, of it to myself. So, you know, like, don't, don't be a hypocrite. Second part of the question. I, I think this is the, there. this is a, a few kind of component problems you're identifying that, that people net describe it as it's so entrenched, nothing else could ever beat it. So problem number one is uh, degree of scale. People thought AOL in the 90s was like insurmountable. And then people thought in the late two, 2008, 9, 10 timeframe that BlackBerry was insurmountable. And people thought MySpace in like 04, 05, 06 was insurmountable. There's been recurring examples of this throughout history in, in various markets. The common, the common thread across the examples I just gave is actually just a function of scale. It's like, yes, they were the biggest thing at the time, but they were still very small on a percentage of like total TAM. And so I think that's like super important to recognize is understanding what is my theoretical maximum scale. And in, in, in almost all cases, theoretical maximum scale is several orders of magnitude larger than you think. Because it turns out the world's a big place and there's a lot of businesses and companies and people and stuff. So I think that's comment A. And I think comment B is r really reasoning with precision about the nature of network effects. The network effects are a tricky concept and, and there's they're in kinds of network effects and different ways in which they manifest. My most, the, the framing I've come to the conclusion that's the most important as it pertains to network effects is what I call inclusionary or, or I should say rather, are the network effects exclusionary or are they not exclusionary? And what does that mean? So let's take bridges as an example in crypto. If you bridge ETH over the solid bridge or ETH over the wormhole bridge, Solana, the existence of those two ETHs is bad for everyone. It's confusing. It means there's slippage now moving between them. It creates it increases developer complexity, UI complexity. It's just like bad all around. And so we have an operating theory, which may, may be false, but, but our general operating theory is that specifically for asset pegging, there is a exclusionary network effect, meaning that as the amount of weth over the wormhole bridge grows, that in that decreases the probability that an alternative version of wrapped ETH can, can exist on the same, at least at a minimum on the same pairwise bridge. So like, most network effects are not exclusionary. In fact, very few are. But there are some examples. Another good example, actually, back there was like Microsoft and Apple, where it was like developers had to commit to writing code for once. They did this, like, especially back in the 80s and the early 90s, like people didn't have the sophistication and the resources and the engineering processes. And there wasn't enough talent that like one firm could could literally manage concurrent processes to write Apple and and Windows, using Mac and Windows, so you had to pick one. Today with iOS and Android, that's like far less of a true, it's just like the frameworks are a lot more mature, there's a lot more engineers in the world, etc. So again, you need to understand the like nature of those. How exclusionary is, is a thing? In the context of, coming back to your original question of like Ethereum and being entrenched, people seem to imply that the market cap and the liquidity and the, the contracts that were written for Ethereum were exclusionary to other chains growing. And that never made any, any sense to me at all, specifically because of gas fees and because the gas fees are like obviously exclusionary or rather they're exclusionary to, to, to current users, which like naturally pushes users elsewhere. And so that, that like struck us as like the market was very much mispricing the kind of fundamental nature of these things in a pretty real way. So yeah, kind of coming back to the original question, you know, that analysis really led us to, to, not thinking Ethereum was very entrenched. 
to sort of stay on the same topic of these broader concepts, you know, maybe piggybacking off of network effects here, one thing you speak about a lot, like especially as of late, is this concept of composability, which has become quite popular, which in my mind is sort of maybe a mix between interoperability and open source. How do you how do you break that down for people? Why does that matter? So I think I think the point of blockchains is to large degree misunderstood. The point of blockchains is to keep track of who has how many coins. That, that's actually really all they do. And some of those coins have nothing to do with each other. Some of those coins have very tight mathematical relationships, mathematical relationships with each other. Let's say a derivative asset versus a spot asset. Uh, and then others have like loose affiliations with one another. So for example, say 10,000 board apes. The most interesting design space broadly is the design space of figuring out more mathematical ways to tie pieces of state together. And the more you do that, the more that that that, that kind of is composability, but also that is what's going to unlock new features and, and functions in, in these systems. Creating another collection of 10,000 PFPs is like not interesting. Creating a set of PFPs that evolve and mutate and are somehow tied to a broader story. And there's some sort of shared ownership of them. And people are wagering cash on whatever how the story unfolds the universe is is going that is like a net new emergent phenomena which is pretty cool but all but but like in doing that versus just like hey there's 10,000 jpegs is what you're really doing is you're, you're increasing the connectivity of the state or maybe or another phrase another way increasing the the total type total amount of mathematical relationships between the various pieces of state and by basically connecting things via math, I think you, you unlock kind of net new emergent phenomena. So I think that that's why composability is so important. That's why we, we really focus on it. We want to be pushing the frontiers in, in these systems and we wanted to, to do that. We think composability is the most interesting way to do that. Gotcha. So to start to wrap us up here, and this can be inside or outside the crypto space, what's something you're very optimistic about that you don't think people are paying enough attention to? Uh, helium. Helium is like... I, I, the people in the telecom industry today have like started to call us and like they're very scared because like they, they see the writing on the wall. And usually when those phone calls happen is like the exact time to be outrageously bullish when the executives start defecting and and saying things like that. So yeah, outrageously bullish helium. They, they, they've really proven that you can get hundreds of thousands of people all over the world to coordinate to achieve some broader objective. And uh, I think that will be the, yeah, I, I think Helium can easily grow to a thousand X its current size. And 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 its network, effect, network effects are extremely exclusionary because the first 100,000 people who are ever going to buy a hotspot already bought a Helium hotspot. And those people are now all bag holders and they've literally built a physical infrastructure network. Right. The, the, and like, I, I think the probability that you're going to create, get people to, to build a new network because of the self-selection, because the fact that the people who have self-selected are bag holders is extremely, extremely difficult. So yeah, I think there's very few things with that much upside skew. Awesome. I appreciate it. No problem, Alex. Hey, cool. I'm glad, glad you reached out and uh, good luck with stuff. All right. Thanks so much. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Peace.